have a thought as we dive into scripture. And so the theory about humans is, the, is actually the reason why I love middle schoolers, because middle schoolers have the opportunity to be their, opportunity to be their most real, authentic selves all the time. Because in middle school, everything's on the surface for you, right? You're going through this crazy, weird development change, and if there's middle schoolers in the room, I'm sorry. I'm not talking at you, I'm just talking about you. But it's hard, we all went through it. I, had, I, I was looking at my middle school uh, photo recently, and I was like, just, I, it was a really severe year for breaking out, and back then, acne medication was not what it was now, and so I had like Stridex pads like on my face for class photos. It was hard, it was rough. But, but in middle school, everything is on the surface. You have less of an ability to hide things or to stuff things that are going on. And so I think what, what's funny is that we actually, in a lot of ways, we all are middle schoolers. Just as we get older, we start to put more veneers or layers around us that actually take us further from being our real, authentic selves all the time. So I'm going to ask you guys something. As we dive into the text this morning, it's something that I ask uh, a room full of middle schoolers every Wednesday night. I say, may we open our lives to the possibility of God's grace for us. And so I'll ask us for that for this morning, because we all are middle schoolers inside. May we open our lives to the possibility of God's grace. And then also, as we dive into this text, may the scripture be what we actually hunger and thirst for this morning. Because I, I think that there's a lot of things in this world, and we can talk about marketing, and that's, that's not here nor there, but, but there are a lot of things in this world that, are, that crave for our attention and crave for us to place our satisfaction in. And so may this morning be a time where we can come before God and come before the scripture and, and dive into it, and may it be what truly satisfies. Let's pray. God, Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you for the, the word that we're going to dive into as we, as we speak about reconciliation. May we be a people that don't just settle for hearing, but may we do, and may we live out your word. God, I pray that, I pray for bold things. I pray that your word will literally transform us from the inside out. I pray that we can look different because we follow you. Amen. Okay. The scripture we're diving into this morning is 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21, which I think is, is going to be on the screen in a second. If you have a Bible, you can open your Bible and follow along, or you can follow along on the screen. Let's read. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21 says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Sorry, this is just really, is this, am I doing it right? Do I need to fix it? Okay, bear with me, sorry. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're excited that reconciliation is a prominent theme in that passage. Reconciliation isn't just a theme that we find in that text, it's actually a theme all through scripture. Because in scripture we see from, from, and this is going to be like, if you've ever seen Lion King in 60 seconds, like those YouTube videos, this is biblical narrative in 30 seconds. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates and is perfect. 
humanity is in perfect communion and perfect relationship with God, which teaches me that that's what we are created for. Genesis 3, sin enters the picture, and then we spend the next 2,000 pages going from Genesis 3 through Revelation 22, being reconciled, God reconciling God's people back to God. And so, I love what that teaches, and I'm, I'm just, for theology professors in the room, I'm, I'm totally cutting some corners because I'm just diving through 2,000 pages of biblical narrative really, really quickly, so forgive me. However, what that teaches me is that the grace of God will always outweigh the shortcoming or the sin of humanity. Because God's grace is bigger than our sin, which means that it's not about us and it's actually about God's grace. And so as we come before reconciliation, may we remember that it is about God's grace. And so we're going we're to do something that I love that Pastor D does on a regular basis, where we're going to kind of dig in verse by verse. But that's just the big overview, and now let's zoom in. So verse 16 says this. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So, there are two Greek phrases in this sentence that I want to dig into. Don't look at me, Brad. Brad teaches Hebrew at Point Loma, and he might be shaming me right now because I'm talking about Greek instead of Hebrew. So, there are two Greek phrases in this passage. One is ketasarka and one is ketasaron. Ketasarka means to regard things from a worldly point of view or to, to know something according to the flesh. Now, things that are according to the flesh are things like success, money, climbing the ladder, social status, having a bigger house or a bigger yard. Viewing things according to the flesh makes it through our eyes. And then ketostaron is to know something according to the cross. Ketostaron, no, no according to the cross, means that because of Jesus, we see things through the eyes of Jesus. We see things in light of or because of Jesus. So, Paul says that we regard, we, from, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly or ketosarka fleshly perspective. Even though we used to view Christ this way, we do so no longer. Paul's, he kind of drops a bomb there. I kind of like that. It's like, hey, you used to view Jesus that way. You used to view Jesus the way you view humans or the way you judge others. But you do so no longer. And I struggle with this sometimes because I have been in church for my entire life and I've heard a lot of sermons and they can say things that I'm like, okay, that's great, but I have no idea why or how that applies to me. And so it feels kind of abstract to say, like, view things through the eyes of, of Christ and not view things through the eyes of humans. But I think where I land in a concrete point, because I work with middle schoolers and it's all about concrete points, then it should look different. And we're going to talk about what it means to look different, but it should look different if we view things through the eyes of Jesus or as Jesus views them. It should look different. Not just, the, not, not just like a pair of glasses that we put on and that it, and it changes our, our lens, but it should literally look different to the rest of the world. It should look appealing. And not appealing like a prosperity gospel, like, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car, everybody's awesome. Not like that. Like, I'm not Oprah. But, I love Oprah, by the way. But, it should look different. It should look appealing because God's love is appealing because it comes into the broken places in the world and it makes it new and it reconciles it. And so as we get into verse 17, we have one of my favorite words. It's a therefore. Therefore, in scripture, whenever that comes up, it means that we need to look at what just came before. So because we view things through perspective of Christ, because we no longer view things according to the flesh, therefore, 
If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. I love the phrase, in Christ. Yep, okay. It's okay, this will be more fun. Okay, I love the phrase, oh, man, that is hair-raising. So I love, the, I love the phrase, in Christ. <clears throat> I love the phrase, in Christ, because it's a phrase that, I had to Google this, because I know that Paul uses it a lot. Paul says, in Christ, all the time. But in Christ is actually a phrase that's used 160 times throughout Paul's letters. And my mom was here last week, and I got to speak to a very similar message in the first service, and... I think I alluded to the fact that when I was growing up, I had to be told things over and over again. So it wasn't just enough to say, like, Jeremy, don't put your finger in the electrical socket. She had to tell me, like, ten times because I had, like, spiky hair all the time because I would just go, boop, like, what does this do? I'm not kidding. So, so Paul repeats. I love that Paul repeats because sometimes I'm really slow. Paul repeats in Christ 160 times throughout his letters. And to be in Christ, I don't think you can define things strictly by what they are not. But to be in Christ is to not be out of Christ. And so if Christ is the epicenter or the focal point of God's reconciling plan for humanity that takes us from Genesis, Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation 22, if Christ is the focal point of that narrative, then to be in Christ means that we get taken into God's total redemptive activity. We get, we get brought in to the story. And I was talking to Dee about this two weeks ago, that there's like, in my mind, it's like a... It's like a Whoosh. And if you're listening online, you're not going to know what that looks like. But it's like, a, it's like a movement, and I don't really have words for this, but it's a movement where humanity, being created for perfect communion with God, is separated from God and needs to be reconciled back to God. And it's like a whoosh. So just picture that with me as we whoosh. I think that important to look at what comes after in Christ. Because this is that if we're in Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. So, new creation language is awesome. Because new is not old. New is reconciled. And if we are in Christ and we are a new creation, then that's not just something that we enter into individually, but it's also part of a communal redemption. Because I am not God's people I'm one of God's people. I'm a person. But we are entering into it together. And communal redemption to me just says that we can't do it alone. So there's a woman in our church that, who, who illustrates this point really well for me. On my first Sunday about four years ago, I visited San Diego First Church. And I've been at staff for a couple months at this point. And I, I walked into the classic service. I didn't know that there was a difference. I just thought, oh, there's a 9 o'clock and at 10.15 so I can go to calf breakfast after the 9 o'clock. It's a little bit different. And so I walked into the, the, the classic service, and the person that greeted me, her name is Sheila Holly. She's a member of our congregation that many of you know. We have a little family representing over here. And so, so Sheila greets me, and, and it just happened that uh, one of my friends, Jared, who, who formerly worked here for a long time that many of you know, Jared happened to be kind of next to me, and he said, oh, Sheila, like, this is Jeremy. He's one of our new youth staff. And she, I kid you not, grips my shoulders with like a, 
iron tightness, and I was like, wow, you are very strong. She, she like, just, not, and not meanly, she just, just places her hand on my shoulder and said, I pray for you. And so I thought, well, I don't know if that's true or not because you don't know me. And so I just said, like, oh, thank you. That's really nice. And then she kind of, like, reaffirmed it, and she, like, replaced her hand and said, no, I really pray for you. I get the list of you staff every semester from, from the youth department, and then I pray over you by name because the work that you do is important. The work that you do with teens matters, and I pray for you so that you can be empowered to do it well. And I, that was my first Sunday visiting San Diego First Church. I'd been part of another church for about a year at that point. And I just thought, that's the kind of church that I need to be at. That's the kind of church I need to be at because there are people older than me that will pray for me without knowing me. That's a church. That's what it means to be church. And so, that, that looks different. That's different than anything I'd ever experienced, and that's why I came back. And then I came back again, and then a few years later, I get to be the youth pastor here, one of the youth pastors here, and I, I love it. It's a wonderful opportunity. But it looks different when you, when you encounter something like that. Because the love of Christ looks different, and it should look appealing compared to what the rest of the world looks like. Throughout this entire narrative, new is replacing old things as obsolete. In Revelation 21, this is like a peek at the end. There's a peek at, I'm not going to go into like end time stuff or rapture or anything like that. I'm just kidding. Got some of your attention there. What if I was just like, poof, bye. So, in Revelation 21, we get a sneak peek at what the full redemptive work looks like. Because I grew up in a church that taught that that they did had a very specific picture of what heaven looks like, and I don't think they had ever opened Revelation 21 before, but they taught a picture that was like pearly white gates and streets of gold, and that's a, that's a beautiful picture on a flannel graph, but I think that it, it needs to tangibly look a little bit different for what it means for me to follow Jesus. So Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. New. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. I love that. Write it down. So, if the new replaces the old as obsolete, then being in Christ should replace our old selves as obsolete. It should look different. I drank a big coffee today, so I don't want to start jumping around too much. But, but it should look different. Reconciliation restores us to what God originally intended. It doesn't bring us back. It doesn't, just, it doesn't just bring us back because I don't want to go back to just Genesis 1 and 2 because then we have to relive the whole story again. So reconciliation is a restorative. It replaces the old creation as obsolete. And, and that's, maybe that's a little bit too abstract. And so to get specific, I would say that all of humanity in old creation, all humanity is in Adam 
And now all Christians, all those who follow Christ, are in Jesus. And that's good news. Thanks. Verses 18 and 19. Let's keep going. This is where it gets good. That was pretty good, but this is where it gets good. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God, was reconcil- that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So the first thing that's kind of crazy in there is that, is that God entrusted humanity with something. How did it go last time God did that? We handled it real well. I wasn't there, so I can, I can totally displace blame. But God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He trusts humanity. He trusts us with the message that he died, that he loved us, that we have eternity. That's crazy. You have a job in that, and the job is to proclaim it. And so here's the deal, is that I, I hang out with middle schoolers all the time, and I also coach a couple of sports at the high school. I don't get to talk about Jesus much on a sports field or in, like next to a swimming pool, but, but I do get to, I get to have conversations that are redemptive. But, but when I hang out with middle schoolers especially, this is the way that the rest of this talk would go. So I'll give you the 30-second version of what would happen in the next 8 to 9 to 10 minutes. Is I would say, this is an invitation we're all invited in, and we are all called to receive reconciliation. So be reconciled. Reconcile yourself back to God. And I don't do the whole, like, turn or burn thing. But, 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 but be reconciled to God, and you're invited into the kingdom, and now go get your friends and tell somebody about it. But the problem with that is that I'm speaking to a congregation of people who have been doing that, who are, who are many of you are, have, have spent a lifetime of faithfulness, not just to, to the church capital C around the world, you spent a lifetime of faithfulness to God's kingdom. And so I can't just tell you, altar's open! So instead... I'm going to talk about four different age groups that are, that are prevalent in our church that I love a lot. Because I think what this means, if this is a communal thing, if we're made to do this together, I think that what this means is that, is that we shouldn't ever do it alone. And if we're going to be part of reconciliation, we have to do it together with people younger than us and older than us. I chose to be part of this church because we had Sheila Holly. That was enough. But there's a lot of Sheila Hollies in this church. And so here's four age groups that I, that, that I think... This is what it means to be part of, part of reconciliation with them. We have middle schoolers in our church. Now, some of you have, have really harsh memories of what middle school was like. I do. It involves spiky-tipped hair. It also involves, I had a puka shell and necklace. <laughs> but here's the deal. Is that middle schoolers need, like, one thing. This is what it takes to have a relationship with a middle schooler. If middle school is, is one of the most insecure times in your life because everything's on the surface and you can't hide it, then what a middle schooler needs for you to help be part of their reconciliation, what a middle schooler needs is for you to tell them that they matter and that they're important. What happens is if you sit down, like this is the difference between a middle schooler and a high schooler that I like a lot, and I'm gonna, this is overgeneralizing, so if you don't fit in this mold, it's okay. This is just an overgeneralization. But when you sit down with a middle schooler, they'll sit down and, and let's say Kenny is a middle schooler and I'm me, and Kenny will say, Kenny would say, does he like me? See, that's how middle schoolers will perceive the world. Is they perceive it, do they like me? Do they accept me? The difference between that and a high schooler is a high schooler will say, do I like them? Are they worthy of me liking them? It's a rough difference sometimes. 
So what a middle schooler needs for you to help show them reconciliation is for you to say you matter and you are important and I like you. What a high schooler needs, I think what a high schooler needs is to be told to don't not believe the lies. And, and to be really specific, I think that the, some of the biggest lies that high school girls hear is that they're not enough, they're not pretty enough, they're not smart enough, they're not athletic enough. I think lies that guys hear, they're not strong enough. That's it. <laughs> they're, not, <laughs> they're not smart enough. They're not funny enough. I wasn't the funny kid in my class. I looked at kids in my, in my classes and I'm like, oh, why am I not as funny as you or as cool? They're not cool enough. A high schooler, high schooler for, for you to matter in a high schooler's life, you need to tell them to not believe the lies. And, and what all of this is leading us towards is that we need to be doing this together. So this is almost like a cheat sheet for how to be in relationship with middle school and high schoolers. But it keeps going because there's other people other than middle schoolers and high schoolers in this church. There's college students and there's, you know, college to 30. There's this, like, progressive development thing happening. And so we live, we, we as a congregation, we worship right next to a university that has, like, over 2,000 undergrads. And I think one of the, this is crazy, but one of the biggest lies that a, that a college student hears is, and this is not bashing any other church or any other congregation or way of worshiping. But I think one of the biggest lies that a college student might hear is, is you should drive 30 minutes away to go to a church that's full of people that kind of think like you and talk like you. That's not, that's not slamming that any other church because those are, there are amazing things happening. We could tell stories. We could bring people in from other churches that tell amazing stories. But what you have to offer college students is more life wisdom. So college students need a mentor. College students need somebody to come and say, like, let me be a Sheila Holly for you. Now, that's kind of hard. It's hard just to walk up to somebody and be like, hi, I want to know you and let me tell you everything about my life and the things I know because I've lived a few more years than you. So you might not want to do that. But there are so many ways to dive in. It starts with shaking their hand. There's, another, there's a few other age groups, though. There are people that are, uh, I just wrote 30 to 40 plus, because, and this is, I'm not lumping anybody into this category. Well, I'm not going to call out ages or be like, hey, show me your driver's licenses. Let me see how old you are. But, but from, from the, this is just the people that I hang out with on a regular basis. And so people that are in the 30 to 40 bracket, a lot of the, a lot of the 30 to 40 people that I hang out with regularly are the parents of the middle schoolers or the high schoolers that I know. And one of the things that they need to be told, or one of the things that, that those people need to be told by you, is that they're a good parent, and that they're doing okay. Or that maybe even that they're doing better than okay. What all of this is leaning us towards is what does it look like to do this as a community? What does it look like for us to be a part of reconciliation together? If we're not made to do it alone, then these are the people we need to be, then these are the people that we need to be loving, and that's how we do it. And then there's, there's other age groups in this church. There's, I wrote 50 plus. At 50 plus, most, many people's kids have already left the house and they enter a new chapter of development and they enter a new chapter of adulthood. You especially are the people that we need to go love and know middle school and high schoolers. That work is not reserved for college students that are energetic or have free time because they don't, but the college students that hang out with middle schoolers choose to come be part of middle schoolers' lives. 
We need people that are 30 and up to come love middle school and high schoolers in this church. It turns, though, because so many are already doing those things. So many of you are already mentoring college students. So many of you are already opening your home home or homes for, for people that are, that are in their 30s or 40s or high schoolers. And so I don't know if it's ever been said to you, but thank you for the way that you do that already because it leads this church. I'm thankful for, the, for, for adults in our church that show up to senior celebration and come and affirm the high school graduating seniors whether they have a graduating senior or not. I'm thankful for the adults that volunteer for VBS who say, I'm gonna, I'll take time out and I'm going to go volunteer and I'm going to go love on... I'm going to love on some some little kids and play some soccer. But we need to keep doing that because we need to be a Sheila Holly for someone. Let's come back to verse 19. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. There's two things in in this passage I want, you to hold those, I want you to hold the things that we just talked about, about those age groups, as we think about, as we dive into the, to the, to the next two things in verse 19. There's two things that, that Paul commands in there, or that, that Paul says are the fruit or the results of reconciliation. The first is that your sins are no longer counted against you, which is good news. That's the, that's the same thing we touched on as we opened up, is that the grace of God will always outweigh the shortcoming and the sin or the missing the mark of humanity. But the idea that You have to go do something. You have to go proclaim it. He says, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That means that as it goes into verse 20, you are then an ambassador of Christ. Not like, not just like a for Christ or you're not just like a a spokesperson, but an ambassador is one who speaks on behalf of. That means, that means that God like this is, I wrote, when, when Paul speaks, God speaks. It's this idea that as, if we are going to be ambassadors of Christ, that the words that we say and the way that we bring in people into relationship and the way that we're, we're part of a communal reconciliation, a communal whoosh, is the idea that as we speak, that the words of God would literally be speaking and pouring out of us. In verse 21, this is where we wrap up. In verse 21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, that's like one of the most like crazy, world-defined passages of Scripture ever. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that being in Christ means that we would become the righteousness of God. I was an English major at Point Loma. Um, I, righteousness is one of those words that you're like, yeah, I know what it means, but if I had to really sit down and say this is what righteousness means, it's kind of hard. And so righteousness, Google it. Righteousness, uh, the next closest word, or the, the, it's defined by another word, justifiable. Justifiable is another one of those words that I'm like, ah, I kind of I think I know what justice is, but I don't totally know what justifiable is. Justifiable Justifiable then is defined as being capable of being explained. To become the righteousness of God means that our lives, the way that God is in our lives, the way that God is speaking through our lives should be able to be visible. That's kind of a big jump, but I like it. As I said earlier, it should look different. 
Because when we, when we enter into reconciliation, we literally trade something that is immeasurably worthy for something that's totally worthless. That's not a fair trade for God. I grew up playing Monopoly, and I would get into huge fights with my siblings over like, I'll give you $200 for Boardwalk. Like, nobody makes that trade. Come on, Boardwalk's like the most valuable property. You're like, bankrupt somebody to get Boardwalk. We should be bankrupt to get God's love, but it's given freely. So, I'm going to read that, that, that verse one more time, and then we're going to say one more thought, and then we're going to pray. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness, righteousness of God. Now, I don't know the story, I don't know the deep narrative of every single person's life in this room, but I would bet that if we had to stand up and if we had to say, these are the areas that my life has been broken, or these are the, this, this is the pain that I've experienced, we would hear a lot of stories of ways that Christ's love has penetrated and has filled those gaps of brokenness in our lives, and has reconciled and redeemed and, and, and renewed us and made us closer to being whole in him. That's what the world needs. The world doesn't need us the world doesn't need us, uh, they do. The world doesn't need us to gather on a Sunday morning. The world needs us to take what happens. We are the church when we gather. But the world needs us to, to break out and disperse from here and to let the love of God as an ambassador of Christ fill the broken spaces in the world because the love of Christ combats the brokenness and the, the issues that are wrong in this world. And if you watch the news this week, there's some, some bad stuff happened this week. There's some hard stuff happened this week with Charleston. That's what the love of Christ, Christ that's what the reconciliation of God, of, of God bringing God's people back to God fills. It doesn't, make it, it doesn't make it okay that that happened. It's like the furthest thing from okay. But that reminds me that it's not about me and it's not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus speaking through us. If we become the righteousness of God, it means that we have put off the old self, we have put on the new. It means that it looks different for the rest of the world so that when the world sees our lives, so that when the world sees the way that we live our lives, not just in four walls in church, but in the way that we go out and, and we allow ourselves to be broken and poured out as food for the world, it should look different. Righteousness of God means that we know God, not just know about God. Being raised in the church my whole life, I knew a lot about God. I could recite facts. I could tell you a lot of things about what, what, who Jesus is. I could tell you a few things about the Trinity. I could have probably rattled off like 10 memory verses. You got Psalm 23, you got Proverbs 5. Come on, keep them coming. I never did quizzing, but it would be fun. But becoming the righteousness of God means that we get to know God, which means we get to participate in intimacy with God, which means that through being in Christ, it looks different for the rest of the world. And that's something that the world needs. That's something that our neighbors need. That's something that people in Point Loma and Ocean Beach need. I believe in gathering on a Sunday. I believe in the importance of coming together as a church. Because I think that that's vitally important. It's really, really important to our life as Christ followers and as a church that we come together. But if church is just what happens here, then we're missing it. Christ didn't die so that we could gather, just so that we could gather and then evaluate it the way we do movies or music styles. 
Christ died so that we would be reconciled back to God and then be broken and poured out for the world. Let's pray. God, my prayer is that not only are our lives open to the possibility of your grace for us, but God, may we not just settle for hearing words that sound good, but may we let your word transform us. And God, may this week look different because we follow you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for sending yourself and your son to die for us. Thank you that we get to see what the end of the story looks like and to know that whatever is happening now isn't the end of the story because you are still writing that final chapter. Amen.